RJLA family. I am Angela Birdsong, your conversation piece host on RadioJustice.org. In the real day-to-day happenings of urban living, locally and worldwide. For you all staying safe at home, are masked on the bus, train, plane, or social distancing everywhere. Today on Conversation Peace, meet and hear Lorraine Moreland's journey. She reached out to me on Facebook and said she has a story to share with other women to help them along the way to provide healing. We know storytelling changes lives and saves lives. The story Lorraine is going to tell us speaks of her struggle and survival of living on the streets of Los Angeles on Skid Row from 1986 to 1994. 27 years later and counting, she is still standing firmly on solid ground. Welcome to Conversation Peace. Now I co-rock a party in the B-Girl stand. I rock on the floor, make the fellas want to dance. I be the sh- and it's all good. And if you understood, would you stop scheming and trying to look hard? I get my bodyguard. You get that booty start. I'm a veteran, which means that I've been in the game too long since the days of paper thin. Way back when I've been putting it down. Ask your homie who's the baddest on this side of town. I float like a butterfly, sing like a bee. Spectacular over MIC. I go for broke, never giving it less than the best. Lots of years in the game at your request. You like the rhyme, right if you dare. I get the paper, so I don't care. Fly, that's me, the epitome of what a real MC is supposed to be. Fucking you up every time that I drop a fucking bullet, baby. I done took your spot. I got the beat, and I ride it well. And if you take a look, it ain't hard to tell that I co rock the party in the B Girl stand. I rock on the floor, make the fellas wanna dance. Lorraine Moreland, welcome to Conversation Peace. I am so excited that you reached out to me on Facebook and said that you had a story that you wanted to share is that she survived living on the streets of Los Angeles on Skid Row. Lorraine, tell us about life before being homeless. Well, I just want to say God is good and he is everything. And without him, I wouldn't have this story. So. And hi, and thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate this opportunity to share some hope and strength to other women and young girls. Well, I was a PTA mother. I I worked at Centinella Hospital. I was a wife. I had four children. And I just loved life. I always wanted to be a wife and a good mother. And that's what my journey was all about. And... um, I had a lot of fun with my children. It was amazing. Um, and then the, the table turned on me in the early mid 80s when they brought the cocaine in and took away a lot of family lives with that stuff. And I guess I was actually I was one of the products of that disaster. Didn't know no better. I was doing it with my husband and he was braining it in the house. But the basic thing about it, I didn't start with him. He had started a year before me, but it was overwhelming. I just couldn't take it anymore because he was coming in late. 
all times of the hours. One time he was coming through the window, almost shot him because I didn't know who was coming through the window. And it's just me and my babies at home. I have to try to protect them because I know he had a key to the door so he wouldn't be coming through no window. So he's lucky. He's very lucky. And um, I told him what happened that I would be his partner because I was tired of him coming home late at night and his friends was telling me that he was taking other girls to the hotel and all that kind of stuff. That's where they was getting high and off the cocaine. Being the person I am and loving my husband at the time, I didn't want him out in the streets. So I said, I'll be your partner. So why did I say that? When I did that stuff, it threw me against the wall. It wasn't for me, but I didn't know. I was having fun with my husband. But eventually the fun started getting to be a disaster. I didn't want anymore. I didn't want to do anything. It was very difficult for me, loving my children and trying to deal with addiction. It was very, 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 took me to another rope. It pulled me away from life itself. And um, things just went down the tube. Um, my husband had his mother and father, which I just had my mom. My dad had passed away. And I couldn't go to my mother because I don't think my mother would have understood the situation. I could always go home. I always had a room, but I felt too ashamed. I really did. I really felt ashamed. And I didn't know where to get help. I did not know where to get help because you know why? I thought it was a normal thing until it cracked me down to my knees. And um, I had a house and everything on the corner path and uh, for Mona. I left it, me and my kids, I left that house right there on the corner. And we moved to uh, Venice Beach, Tapanapple. I was hoping to get some freedom because I left my husband and went there. And they told me about a month later after I was there that it wasn't suitable for my children to live there. So I called my mom because I'm waiting on an apartment. Back up. Let me back up. I was waiting on an apartment. They said, well, if you go through this program, you get your own apartment because you have children. So I'm trying to stay there and no more drugs or alcohol or anything. I'm really trying to do this on my own. And then the, they told me that it wasn't suitable for my children. So they would have to be taken away from me. So I called my mother. I asked my mom, I said, mom, can you come get the children? Because they said it wasn't suitable for the children, but I could stay here until I get the apartment. My mom said, of course. So my mom had to go out and get groceries for four children. But when the worker called my mom, she wasn't home. She was at the grocery store. So she called my mother-in-law. So they went to my mother-in-law. Because back in the days, the social worker, she, going, she leaves at five. So she's not going to be hanging around with children. So she needed to get rid of four kids. And so she took them to my mother-in-law's house. So that's when I was detached from my children. Now, what, what, what was it about the living situation that wasn't suitable for, for children, according to the social worker? Well, because they had older men there and older people there that was in addiction and stuff like that. So 
you couldn't because we had to sleep in the church on the on the benches and stuff. And so they just didn't feel and I had four of them. So they just didn't feel that would be a safe place for them. So and I can understand that. Uh, they knew before I did, because I was just thankful to be with my kids, no matter where we could had to sleep, we was together. But maybe it could be a time you could turn your back and something went wrong or something like that. They looked at it that way. Little, these are little kids, pretty beautiful little girls and boys. So you're before before you go go further. You're you're in Venice at a church. Bible Tech. And I know in the pre-interview you told me that at some point you had to go to court to get your children back. But this yeah. isn't the point. This this isn't the part where they were officially removed out of your care. Yes, at the Bible Tech Connect. That's when they uh, removed them and they went to live with my uh, mother-in-law. So at that church, that's, so it was official when they were, so it was an official, okay, act of them uh, removing. It wasn't just a suggestion like, maybe this is not where they should be. Didn't take them away from me. My mother-in-law, one of them after they came to her house because basically they were supposed to go to my mother's house, but she wasn't home. So the worker took them around the corner to my mother-in-law's house. And that's when it began that my kids was taken away from me. Okay. And I so hard to keep them with me. And um, I was devastated. I didn't know what to do. What did you do after they, they were taken from you? Well, they, I went down to um, a shelter in downtown. I didn't want to stay there anymore. I didn't have my children. I didn't want to wait for no apartment or anything because now I am really back into the mood of addiction. So I needed to drink. I needed to do what I needed to do in order to get over this devastating feeling that I have within myself. So it was like a trick to me. And I, I had had my children with me and I was hoping that we could get together now, have our apartment and not depend on anyone but me and do what I need to do as a mother, even all the time fighting uh, away, getting away from their dad. Because my children was my life. They was my everything. I was, I was in a situation that I had no clue how to deal with it on my own. And I know my mom, she prayed definitely for me. And she was very disappointed that they didn't come to her. And overbearing for my mom I think it hurt her a lot that she never really talked about and for me it really hurt me so what happened I went to uh, the shelter downtown at 611 and it was very devastating to go down there by myself and uh, I almost got raped or killed on my second day there Uh, they sent me to the shelter 611 I never really learned to trust anyone, not even guards, because in that case, they was the bad person, <laughs> you know? So, but I said, if I'm going to scream or I need to be outside. So that's how I convinced myself to sleep in a doorway because I was afraid to be inside when I first went down there on Skid Row. And so you're, so you were at the church in Venice. How did they, so did the church take you to Skid Row or you decided to leave the church in Venice? They sent me there, really. They actually sent me there to get recovery, you know, um, 
I still could drink, but when I got there, I drank more. <laughs> so I really didn't get any help actually that I needed. And I'm going through these processes that I don't know anything about, never being homeless like that or addicted to drugs or alcohol or anything like that. I, it was like a newfound direction for me at first that I didn't have no clue what to do. And so I just stayed on the street and I washed windows and um, cars to make my money so I could drink and use, you know. You have other opportunities to make money and stuff like that, but basically it wasn't my thing. And after almost getting raped or something, you know, I didn't, that wasn't my thing. So it was very scary being out there. It was just so scary, 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 scary. I wouldn't wish it on any woman, even now. I didn't know how I was going to survive this, but I had to do what I had to do. And I couldn't go to my mother because I wasn't going to go to my mother's house and take anything from my mom for drugs or alcohol. So I had to fight it. And um, eventually I got help. What, what were some of the worst things that happened living on the street? You said um, attempted rape. I don't know if there's anything worse than that, but what are some of the other um, work, bad things that happened while you were living on the streets? Just fighting for your life. People want to steal what you got and you ain't got nothing. So I just wasn't going to let that happen. So I had to fight all the time and mostly stay drunk just to do that because I'm a very kind-hearted person. I don't see hurting you or anything because I know I haven't done anything to you. But it was so many evil people out there. And the drunk, being drunk makes you evil too. So you had to balance out your mind to be something like them sometimes so you could uh, fight your battles and win. Because if you didn't win, you're going to die. They're out to kill you. Because they're not in their right mind either. And then you have some people just devils. Beauty devil. Don't even have to be high to be a devil. They're just devil's spirit. Nasty talking, rude people. And a lot of men think they could just push women around anytime and any place they want. And I found that out to be so true because that's what they do. That's what they do on Skidrow. They'll steal from you, rape you, and everything. Because they think they're big and bad and 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 mighty. Because we don't have nowhere to go. We don't have nothing. So they want to steal our last little dignity if we let them. But I still carry that mustard seed that God is love. And I love love. So I had to hold on to that. I let myself believe and to hold on to the love of God. Because I knew he was the only one that was going to be able to save me. So you so you're you're sleeping on doorsteps and I know in the pre-interview you told me that you also you chose to live in a park too. So you I did doorsteps, parks, and why it's the park? Well, everybody kind of hung in the park. It was a beautiful park. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was surrounded by the Belmar Hotel, uh, old factories that's high risers like. People work in them factories making all kinds of stuff that they would sell. Some of the beautiful Bullocks and May Company, the stores they had on Broadway back in the days. And uh, Park was, most of the people lived there in the park. 
at night because they didn't have anywhere to sleep. They, so they had this big empty pond there. At first it had water and then they emptied it and people would sleep in there. I would call it my bed because it felt like one. It was like surrounded by the edges so you can get in the little corner. And if you had cardboard or I always kind of had a blanket or something, I would go to sleep in there and people would be getting high and communicating with each other that was on the street. It wasn't a very safe place, but you get used to the danger of being out there because you see so much, not always at you, but at others. And you see so many things and it was devastating and you had the big bullies and sometimes you would walk over the bullies the next night, they would be dead. Because your bullies just don't last long. They just don't last long on the streets. People get tired of being pushed around, no matter what condition they're in. They don't want to be pushed around by some bullies. And so that's what kept it kind of balanced. And you said that in the pre-interview that you, you chose the park because it gave you energy, it gave you hope. You saw people going to work and, and some people would talk to you. The spirit of life will give you life when you're dying. Specifically said that during the interview and that, that, stu that stuck with me because, you know, because as, you know, because we, we walk by homeless people, we drive by them, not too many people talk to them. And a lot of people didn't talk to them then. It was act like maybe they was afraid, but a lot of people did talk. They would stop and talk to you and ask you if you want something to eat or did you need a coat or a blanket? And most of them, they have uh, coffee, hot coffee, which I didn't drink coffee then, but it would be so cold sometimes. I'd drink it anyway. Uh, but it was the joy of people not discreet not treating you bad and talking with you and they're on their way to work or they're on their lunch break or something. But you walk or you're in a corner, but people would talk to you and say, you know, your life can be changed and I'm going to pray for you. And I just sucked that in because I needed it. And I needed to hear that even from a stranger. Yeah, it was very touching and wonderful because it lifts me up and I rise from those words encouraging words. That's why they always say, if you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. Because somebody might need to hear something nice to lift them up. You don't know what a lot of people are going through, you know. It's a beautiful and it's a historic park. And I got a chance to make a movie out of that park, be a part of it anyway. Part, which park is this and what movie? Oh, it's called Persian Square, and the movie is called Redemption Square by John Mooty. And how did you end up in that movie? Well, I was walking through it with my dog, and I saw these young, and I love handsome men. <laughs> so I wanted to know what they was doing, and they told me they was doing a school project. I said, oh, wow, I would love to be a part of it because I know all about this part. Yeah. And he said, okay. And um, I was I was one of the biggest parts in it. I got the part to sing and walk around and talk to the homeless people and tell tell my story. And my dog's in there. And we we he showed um, um, 
Clifton's restaurant with my mom and my daddy's picture because we used to go there when I was a little kid. That's how the only way I knew about downtown because my parents would bring me down here, you know. So it's a whole documentary and I hope people get a chance to watch it. It's called Redemption Square. It's about Persian Square. It's a park on Fifth and Hill and it's by John Mooty, M-O-O-D-Y. Okay, well, you know, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want us to talk about some of the resources that you found while on Skid Row. And of course, the road that led to sobriety. I'm Angela Birdsong. You're listening to Conversation Piece on RadioJustice.org with my guest, Lorraine Moreland, who is telling us her amazing story of living, surviving, and overcoming life on Skid Row. We'll be right back. There's a new housing plan for the ghetto eventually. Projects for a new American century. False flag terrorism controlling you mentally. The gospel in the hands of people with no empathy. A mixture of dangerous social chemistry between law enforcement and a military entity. Cameras on the corner of every corner you facing. Testing out a future Gestapo on immigration. Power, consolidation, information restricted. Just like the iron law of oligarchy predicted. Incarcerating the poor among the drug addicted. But not the families of the ruling class that's afflicted Cause it's a fucking caste system like corrupted Hinduism I think you should listen I've been through the system in prison I've been through religion Carried the cross as a Christian Like it was anti-disestablishmentarianism Until the seeds of despotism arrested my vision Lyricism with cynicism and syllogisms Until they fed through Albi Sucampos and kill me in prison Chemtrail conditions Stem cells of Leo Strauss's philosophy The birth of neocon policy But I laugh at America's fear Of a New world order controlling the hemisphere Cause my people been living that for the past 500 years Intelligence, understanding The facts they deserve to know No governmental plan should impose its restraints Strengths, strength against your will Your will, your will Who do we trust? Who do we trust? The facts Who do we trust? Who do we trust? I'm Angela Birdsong and you're listening to Conversation Peace on RadioJustice.org Welcome back with my guest, Lorraine Moreland, where she says, if, you, if somebody takes you out to the sea, you better know how to swim back. Lorraine, what was the turning point for you to not being homeless? Well, that's a good question. Thank you for asking me. Um, I remember I was in my doorway and um, on 3rd and Alvarado, and um, I had my head laying on the ground it was raining that day, and then I was couldn't wait to get to the shelter that I go, Good Shepherd Center for Homeless Women, to take a shower and get me something to eat because I was cold. See, I would piss on myself. That one second, it would be so hot, that gave me hope because it warmed me up that second. <laughs> and I couldn't wait to get to the shelter to take a bath, clean myself up, and eat a lunch because you have to clean up before you go in the dining room. And when I got to the door, it was a nun, Sister Ann, Sister Mary Murphy came running into the door. She saw me coming in there. And she said, uh-uh, today, no matter what I do, you are not sleeping on the streets no more. That was October 6, 1994. And she said, no matter what I do today, you are not sleeping on those streets no more. She said, and I saw you on my way to work and you was laying in that doorway with your 
head on the ground and your foot up on a stroller. It just broke my heart. I had tears all the way to work. And I knew that day I had to help you with all my heart and my soul. And she said, this is the day. And she was telling me, and I'm like, what is this woman talking about? <laughs> it was like, okay. So there was an intern there that was helping her trying to find me an alcohol place to go for recovery. So she called the alcohol center for women. And she called others, but this one particular said I can come the next day, which would be October 7th. So, okay. So I'm finna leave out again because I'm going to get recovery. That's what they called it. I heard the girls all the time say that. I'm going to get my last drink of night train was $1.38 around the corner at the market. I went to touch the doorknob. I didn't get my hand on it. And the girl came running and said, oh, they said you can come today. So I never got a chance to go out the door. I got a shower. I ate lunch. Sister called the cab for me and took me to 12th and Alvarado. I walked in that place. I was told. The counselor there pulled me in a room. Myra. I'll never forget her name. She sit down. It was a gay and lesbian place. And all the counselors was gay. She sit me down there, which I'm straight as a board. She sit me down there and she said, don't worry and don't be ashamed. She said, we're going to help you. Whatever you need, we're going to help you. Just follow the rules and do what we ask you to do. Don't start any fights. Don't get mad at other women because we're all in this together. So they went to show me my room and it was in the dormitory, dormitory with a whole lot of women. I started crying. I said, I won't be able to make it. I wasn't that close to women like that. And so she put me in a room, beautiful room, had three beds in there. Mine was just by the window. I knew I was going to make it then. Oh, I knew I was going to make it then. That bed was so pretty. After sleeping off the, on the streets, so, so, but see that beautiful bed? Oh, my God. I just knew I, I was home now. I wasn't going to leave that bed nowhere. That bed was so beautiful and sitting by the door with my, by the window with my dresser. Mm, mm, mm. I had a long closet. And uh, I went to my first meeting there. I think it was that night too. And I remember a lady coming looking so good. She was so beautiful, beautiful yeah. black woman. And she said how she got her life back together, got her children in her life. And she was so happy and she had her lover sit next to her and she got a job and all that. And even my first time hearing a person share at a meeting, that sounded good to me, but I still didn't recognize it. But one day at a time, they would tell us because we would go to meetings every day in these rooms. And the council said, you know, these windows, these walls got ears. So watch what you say. And um, I stayed one day at a time. I worked hard. The lesbian women were so nice to me. They helped. They wouldn't let me lift up nothing because I was a good cook. So I had to cook for them. <laughs> and they loved my cooking. And they was always so kind to me. Never try to hit on me or nothing. There was always like a big brother toward me or something. So I love that. I learned a lot to respect women by lesbian women because they have feelings and they have wants and needs as well. And they have, they share what's inside of them, how they became that way and different things. You can't 
do nothing but have sympathy for them and love them. And I embrace women a whole lot different than I ever in my whole life because I understood them a lot better because we all go through something and it changes our lives and, and we all want peace. We all want love. So it was a beautiful place and they pushed me along. They wouldn't let me do anything to get me in trouble uh, that I got in trouble or anything. You know, they was there for me to hold me and walk me through this journey that I was going in recovery and they helped me. And I can say today, I'm very thankful. I'm very, very thankful for this program. And I graduated from that program. My mama got sick while I was in this program. I said, mama, you want me to leave this program and come take care of you? Say, oh, my mom said, uh-uh, child. No, 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 you stay right there. My mama got better. She was able to come to my graduation, March 31st, 1995. And she was so happy for me. You know, I was happy for myself too. But I ate good and I slept good. Every night I got down on my knees and I would pray. I, if it was song or Proverbs, Proverbs 1, the first of the month, I'd read that and I'd go to bed reading it. Second day, I'd read it. I'd keep on for, for to the Proverbs 31. The month, the month didn't always go to the 31st. So I always had the first to go back to and read that Proverbs 31. But Proverbs was so powerful and it let me know what I was walking through through the day. So I started reading it in the morning and I, the dog, I'll tell you some of the things it said and be aware of. That's what made me make it through the day because it was true. God's word is the truth and it helps you and it gives you and it. It gives you the right spirit to make it through the day. Place that you're talking about on 12th and Alvarado, that's the Alcoholism Center for Women. Yeah, a great place. I, I would just... Any woman, if she has an alcohol problem or some, she needs somewhere to go get her head together and her life back in order, I would definitely call them. I would definitely call them. I don't know how the pandemic is uh, working right now, but I still would call them and get help. So they definitely helped me. And I have been clean and sober for 26 years. One day at a time. Figured I was out there for eight. Let me see if I can be clean and sober for eight. Then the eight came. Okay, let me see if I can double it for the six, for for uh, thirty-two. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Six, eight, and eight, sixteen, and twenty-four. So I wanted to see. I didn't know I was gonna make it to the twenty-four, but I did want to double up the time. <laughs> so thankful, one day at a time. Have the hope for it, and you have to embrace it with God, because it's a God program. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I walk with that each and every day, because I cannot control nobody. I am powerless over people, places, and things, and I ain't running nothing. I just suit up and show up for my life and hope. I can make somebody else's life better as well. Amen. Amen to that. Now, what were some of the other services that you used while you were on Skid Row? We know that you went and would shower and have lunch at the Good Shepherd Center for, for homeless women. And then you started your, um, your turnaround, the pivotal moment when Sister Mary Murphy 
spoke to you on that day in 1994, and then you went to ACW for your first Alcoholics Anonymous uh, meeting. What were there any other services that Absolutely. that you that, that were available to you on Skid Row then? Absolutely, it was the Women's Center. It was on Fourth and Los Angeles. I never made it to the one on um, Fifth and San Pedro, but I did go to the very first one they had, and they would give you food and clothes and just treat you so much better than you felt inside your own soul. I went to the hippie kitchen that was on Six and Gladys. They give you some really good hot soup with some bread. And that woman would give you, you need a coat, she'll give it to you. You need some shoes, she gonna make sure you got them. Matter of fact, that woman is still there serving the community of Skid Row today. And she makes sure, you know, and it was very difficult for women on the street at that time. But they made it so possible that women was treated with such kindness, you know, and that's what I liked about it. Because some places I went was not nice at all. I mean, really not nice at all. And I don't want to mention their names because they had to deal with who they are, what they put out. But the ones that really put out love and gave women back their dignity and let them feel that they are part of society. I could say Good Shepherd Center, uh, the Women's Center, LA Mission was just amazing. I went back there to be a pastor there for people. I wanted them to know that their life could change just like my life changed as well. And I see a lot of them on the street now and they say, thank you, you changed my life. I worked for Good Shepherd for 15 years because I wanted to give back what they so freely given to me because it's not easy dealing with women that became homeless or spousal abuse or anything like that. Seem like people don't understand that if they haven't felt that, but I knew it all. And I knew how to treat them with tender loving care because that's what they need. It's not about a business. It's about somebody's heart and dignity and who they are, especially as a woman and a mother and a daughter, grandmother, I mean, sister, auntie, you know, and employer. Some, it's, it's, it's just something about us that we need to know that if we put ourselves to it and treat ourselves good and not let people take advantage of us, we will make it through. We will make it through. And people that work with less than fortunate women need to know that. It's not about a paycheck. It's about helping, helping, helping someone in need and going an extra mile. And that's when you see the glory and the results of your hard working. And when you get that paycheck, you know you got paid for something real, not just for the money, but because you earned it. One of the other services that you, you said that you, um, there was a woman named Myra Turley with a group called um, TLC. Tell us about Miss Myra and, and the group that, what, what, what she did for women on Skid Row. Well, Miss Myra, she was a counselor for us. She taught us how to believe in ourselves, to do our paperwork and our footwork, and always get on the phone with a good attitude. Nobody owes you nothing. 
you got to act like you want some respect. And you got to remember that person is the gatekeeper. So you want to get past her or him. So you can't go cussing them out. You can't be angry cussing them out. You don't think you can do it. Let somebody else make the call for you. But don't you take it upon your emotions to control anything or make anything happen because it's not going to happen. So you have to be kind if you want to get past the gatekeeper. And that's what she taught us. And she she would teach us to get to women should get together, have a lunch together, talk about different things. One might know more than the other to help you with your paperwork or how to fill them out. But it's very important you know how to fill paperwork out. And don't feel ashamed because you don't know how, because some people are uh, masters at filling out papers. They know what the dot means. <laughs> so she would teach us that. And she would teach us to always be loving and kind to one another, get together on holidays and share gifts or uh, just kind words to one another. And she worked so hard for us. And she had a partner, her name was uh, Kathy. And she would also help a lot with the paperwork and different things like that. And they was just angels, just pure the angels to women that needed help. You know, you can be the smartest woman in the world, but when you come to the point where you have lost your glory, your mind forget about everything. Because it's trying to it's trying to rob you of your knowledge until you get other people to care about you, to bring that knowledge back into existence, into your being as a woman, because we all have it there, but sometimes we lose it. And then speaking of breaking through the gatekeepers, how did you get your children back? Oh my God, I, well, the Shepherd Center, oh, they worked so hard for me. I had to get a job, so I got a job at Denny's. I would work there. Uh, for two years because I wanted to go to the shelter I worked for. I told them when I started there, I'm going to school for psychology because I want to learn how to be able to communicate with people much, much better and to work with people and have group therapy. And um, they understood. So when it was open at the Shepherd Center, I found, I, I put in the paperwork. I asked for help because my mind wasn't fully developed into back to normal situations you know so I got the job and so I left Denny's oh and when I was at Denny's I saw a Rodney King I got a chance to sing to him because I was the singing Sundays at Denny's by the airport I would sing to the people while I'm taking their order <laughs> and they said where's that singing waitress <laughs> so I just had fun I just enjoyed my life being clean and sober and I let people into my life that wanted to help me to stay that way. And I still do it today. So that's what happened at um, Good Shepherd Center. I'm sorry, I keep talking so much, I forget the question. No, it was, how, how did you, you, you said the Good Shepherd oh, yeah. um, Center helped yeah, you I get your back. Yeah, how did I get my kids? So that was the journey. <laughs> so yeah, so I started going, I worked at USC. So I had to work at USC too. So I did my hours there and different things like that. You know, when you try to get your kids got back, you have to do a lot of things. They don't play. You, they, this, because they think you're not going to do it. Oh, but let me tell you, I was doing whatever. If I could do all that drinking and use, I could do whatever's right. And I would do everything I was told, which you had people 
what do you call them people? Um, training you right, training you to go in the right direction. And I respected that. And that, so the, the nuns that worked at Good, uh, Good Shepherd Center for Homeless Women, they was working on my, um, I had to graduate from ACW. Then I got a chance to come back there and live for a year. And then I got section eight and I, I lived at um, Hawks, which they call a residential uh, place. And then we moved to St. Michael's and then I got my section eight. And then my kids, my kids came back to live with me. And that was wonderful because even when I was homeless, I would write them and at Christmas time, I would send them gifts and money and different things like that. You know, I made quite a bit washing windows. So. So that was my job, washing store windows or car windows. I think I'm the woman that started it. <laughs> so uh, Myra, she helped me uh, move into my apartment. My counselor, she was my counselor. And this lady at Denny's, her, her aunt had died. And she said, well, with $75, you can get anything out of my, my aunt's house you want. First thing I saw was a beautiful metal a cross. That's the first thing I held in my hand. I wanted a dresser, bed, all these things. And Miss Myra, my counselor, they came and got all this stuff and brought it to my new apartment. And I asked God, please give me God an uh, apartment with windows in it. So it was up there with windows all on it. It was a beautiful first apartment in, in so many years. And then my baby daughter came to live with me and it was just amazing. It was just amazing. I missed them so much. And I'm so, I was so glad that I was able to come back and be in their life again and working and doing the right thing like I always wanted to do. I wanted to be a good wife and a good mother. Yeah. You know, we're, we're going we're gonna to take another break. And when we come back, I, I want us to, you know, I think I can talk to you forever. <laughs> Your, your your story is so powerful and amazing and obviously inspiring and helpful to to others but when when we come back to to wrap up i want us to go into what you're doing now and also that you got remarried you got remarried and how and where you found that husband when we come back. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm Angela Birdsong. You are listening to Conversation Piece on Radio Justice, Los Angeles, with my guest, Lorraine Moreland. We'll be back with her amazing story. To my real ill, heavyweight hitters, dope getters, 50 ways to make figures. My n- they come on the spot to fail sisters, like the hair rail spitters, the kids on the ziggas ziggas. When it's ugly, then the club is lovely. Dogs be sipping Hennessy and bubbly. To my comrade, they keep it flaming hot on dangerous blocks, claiming spots where the goal is to be one of the top ranked soldiers. One of the high rollers, get respect in the hood. Credit is good. Knock it down, lumberjack style, baby. Extra wood. Rock it all night long. The bangathon, baby. Keep hanging on. We like it with the lights on. Don't have to blow 20 down to get to know honey style. Show of the town, steal a heart, no money down. Hard talk. 
internationally known when I'll be on the mic. My guest Lorraine Moreland says the ultimate desire is to go in the right direction. If you need information about Downtown Women's Center, please call 213-680-0600. For the Alcoholism Center for Women, you can reach them at 213-381-8500. And for the Good Shepherd Center for Homeless Women, 213-235-1460. I'm Angela Birdsong, and you are listening to Conversation Peace. Lorraine, tell us, how did you get remarried and where did you meet that, that, that second husband? Oh, thank you for asking me that, because it's so special. Well, I met my husband, well, my friend, he was just my friend. And um, when I was homeless and I would hang in the alley by his apartment and he would come out there and ask me, was I hungry and take me to get me something to eat and sit and talk with me and take pictures. And he took a picture of me and he was a photographer for the city. And I said, would you send that picture to my mother? She hadn't saw me in a while. And he said, okay. So I gave him my mother's address and he said he would send it. I just trusted him because he would come out every day concerned about me. And the guys in the alley and say, oh, Chris been looking for you. And I would say, what? What are you looking for me for? And um, he was. He just wanted to see how he was and how I was doing. He was just a good friend, just a good, honest friend. And um, he went through a relationship that didn't work out for him. And I felt sorry for him. And um he shared it with me and, you know, didn't work out. But anyway, we just started talking more. And I got, when I got clean and sober, he sent me my first card. So it was under my door before I even opened my door. And I thought that was very special. Very, very special. He was very a special guy. And um, he had a motorcycle accident when he was 23 years old. So it landed him in the wheelchair. But he was still so handsome and so beautiful and so kind. And he loved taking pictures of the homeless people downtown. He took gobs of pictures of them. And he would develop them 16 by 20s. He just loved the homeless people. He would ask them their story and they would so freely share them with him. And we just kept being friends and graduated from the ACW went through the process, got my job and everything. Then I got my first apartment. And like I told you before, I asked for windows. And one day I was in my apartment and something told me to look out the door, which was a nice thing to do anyway, because it was beautiful houses across the street. So I loved it anyway. And I saw a hand going down, just looking at time. When somebody, when something spirit or something told me to look out the door, and I went to the door with him and he looks up at me and he said, now do you see how much I love you? And that's when I fell in love with him. I just was going to think he was going to be my friend. But when he get, got left his wheelchair at the end of them stairs and climbed those stairs, and he was not the type was in there, climb those stairs, okay? He was sweet and kind, but I don't think he was going to take that chance. But he did. And it went on from there. And I... I I was happy because 
I felt I had someone that loved and cared about me. And I didn't have to do this journey anymore on my own. So I took it for what it was and loved every moment of it. And one day he asked me to marry him. And I said, yes, in the restaurant, screamed it. And everybody looked at me. I said, yeah, you just asked me to marry him. And I got on his lap and he wheeled out the restaurant and everybody was cheering for us. It was such a beautiful moment. And I'm very thankful even for today. And we had a good life together, but he died. He died October uh, 6, 2011. And he died on my sobriety date. And he always made sure I went to the mountains and prayed and 12 and 12 studied. He always gave me my cake and my, along with my daughter, my oldest daughter, she always gave me my cake too. And he did too. So it was really nice to, not to have to go through this journey alone and then losing two sons. He was there with me to embrace me and keep me strong because I could have went out. I could have went out, but I didn't. I lost my mother. He was there. I didn't go out. And I thank God. I thank God I had someone. I think a woman needs someone strong in her life. I mean, you can have a kid or, or something like that, but I think a good, honest man is worth having a good life with or even a woman. Long as you guys have a good life together and you're bonded in a good, beautiful way. So I ain't mad at people that's gay. Cause like I said, I made it through a gay program. So I ain't mad at people. We all need love. We need to embrace people. And he gave me back my dignity, he gave me back. I could be that mother and, that, and, and have that husband. And I did. And I'm very thankful today it's kind of lonely now, but I just, I'm not going to take anything or anybody. <laughs> I wait on the Lord. I wait on the Lord, child. I wait on the Lord. Yeah. Right. But Beautiful love me, story. Yeah. He gave me so much love. I think it would just be a waste not to be able to share it with someone else that needs it. Right. You mentioned your, your, your two sons. I know that's a whole nother story, a whole nother show about um, that, their, their stories and the, the loss of your two, your two sons, um, one in 2001, another one in 2007 to senseless gun violence. Um, my condolences to you. Not easy every day. The day is my son's birthday, my second one that got killed, birthday today. And so much was going in my mind, but something stopped me in my track and said, you know what? It was you and that baby when he was coming out, just you and him. Now, when he hit the world, it was a whole different thing. But when he was coming out of my womb, it was me and him. And right. That my heart right back up where it belonged. Because when these days come, their anniversary days, oh my. I just, my whole body just breaks down. I mean, I really, I feel for any mother that has lost a child. Some are stronger and some are not, but it's all the pain that we're all carried from carrying our beautiful baby inside us. And I know that we carry that pain. And I was not as strong and I don't think, I'm still not, but I can't let it take me out to go drink or use or feel like, I'm not worthy or something like that. And I'm getting punished for something or whatever, because I don't think I ever did anything in my life to be punished to lose a child. Um, 
and be taken away from me when I had my children was my life, you know. So my heart goes out also to any mother that has lost a child. I know it's never an easy thing to grasp in losing a precious child. I saw, I read, they said, no, the mother's supposed to go before the child. I don't look at it that way. I don't think a parent, I don't think it's either way a parent goes before the child or the child goes because we're God's children and he's the one that says so. So we have to adapt to loving one another and not taking life for granted, period. It's just every moment we have with our family, our children, endure it and love it and embrace it. That's all we have. We don't have the answers to all the other stuff that goes on. So I want to give my heart, my love, my concern and my condolence to mothers that has lost children. And I'm not leaving the fathers off because it takes two to tango. And my love and my condolence for you guys too. And there's always a healing process. Never get over the pain. Never, ever. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now, what are what are you doing now? Because we know you 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 were the the singing waitress. So let's <laughs> share with the conversation piece family about Urban Voices Project and the Los Angeles Poverty Department. Yes, uh, Urban Voices is a project that pulls people into sing. Um, we sing at many different places, events all over. Uh, we sing with Boosie Collins. We sing with Dick Van Dyke. We sing with um, LA Care when they have our employees uh, lunch or something like that. We sing at LA, um, Los Angeles, uh, the Midnight Mission on Thursdays, uh, the Street Symphony. We sing whenever they call us. I have been through some really good gigs, but I'm not with them anymore. I'm with L- Los Angeles Poverty Department that does plays and anyone is able to join. All you have to do is go online to the Urban Voices Project or Los Angeles Poverty Department. And I know you will love Los Angeles Poverty Department. We do plays, we rehearse what we do. We have to do it on Zoom now and we're getting ready for a play in March. And if you like to read and want to be a part of a play, contact Los Angeles Property Department and you're welcome to be a part of our family. And we love people and we love people that want to act and want to learn how to act in a play. And it's amazing. And it's serving Skid Row. We're coming straight out of the heart of Skid Row and letting people know that life goes on and that life is in session and no one should be left behind. Yeah. Well, on that note, on that note, we are going to end our conversation for a conversation piece because like I said, this, the, your, your, your life is so full and your journey is so impactful 
that we can we can do a whole nother show. <laughs> but but thank you so much for, for for giving me your time today. And I just want to make sure that conversation piece for crisis support, helplines, and warm lines, go to NAMIUrbanLA.org under resources. Thank you to Lorraine Moreland for your story of hope, struggle, and survival. Thank you to Leslie Radford, Adam Rice, Michael Washington of M. Soul for the opening and closing theme song, and always you, our RJLA family. Reach us on Radio Justice Facebook. Give us some love. Give us some likes as you listen to us worldwide anytime on radiojustice.org. I'm Angela Birdsong. Once again, thank you for allowing me to share this very special experience of conversation piece on Radio Justice with you. Remember to be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be brave, be courageous, and let all that you do be done with love.